This is Research Bites. Hello everyone, my name is Robin Ward. I'm the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Health here at the University of Sydney and welcome to Research Bites. This is our second podcast and the podcast is designed to profile some of the amazing work of our early and mid-career researchers and particularly those who are having impact on an international stage. And today I'm joined by Caitlin Jones and I'm going to first ask Caitlin to tell us a little bit about herself and then we're going to talk about her really important study about opioids and back pain. So Caitlin, where do you come from and how long have you been at Sydney Uni? So I come from a background of clinical work as an occupational therapist. I did that for a couple of years and then uh, I guess just got curious about what else was out there Um, and I thought about doing some research And I got some good advice early on that when you're thinking about doing research, to go looking for the best supervisor you could imagine and to choose that person as the primary thing and let the exact topic be a secondary thing. So I went scouring through the internet to find someone that I thought would be an excellent supervisor and mentor. And I found Professor Christine Lean and she was based at Sydney University. So I approached her um, and asked for a shot. And now here I still am years later. Fantastic. And the paper you've got published is in The Lancet, and I think for people who don't know how important that journal is, um, perhaps they aren't working in this field because it's an extraordinarily important journal, particularly because it's influential with clinicians and it's also very hard to get published in The Lancet. So congratulations, that's a major achievement. And the topic you've researched is back pain, and I don't think there'd be a single person out there who doesn't know someone or doesn't experience back pain themselves, acute back pain or chronic back pain. And I know personally from my own experience of having back pain, it's very painful and debilitating and can cause a lot of morbidity and mortality. And a lot of people use opioids for pain despite the guidelines because they think that that's going to help the pain and the pain is so severe that they feel there's nothing else to do but to take opioids. So your study was really very interesting because you've made some different observations to what we have traditionally thought. So perhaps if you tell us about what you found and why you think it is so important. Yeah, sure. So like you said, back pain is the most burdensome health condition in Australia and around the world from both the perspective of how much disability it causes people and what it costs the country to manage it as well. And you're right that a lot of people use opioid pain medicines for back pain. It's actually currently still in the guidelines to be considered as you know a second or third line treatment when other things have failed. But that recommendation wasn't based on any direct evidence before. It was sort of based on the assumption that an opioid pain medicine being a strong painkiller would be suitable for severe pain like acute back and neck pain. But until the OPAL trial was done, yeah, we didn't actually have a a good idea of how well it worked to compare that to the harms that opioids can cause, which are serious and many. Um, So, yeah, the OPAL trial was conceived by Professor Christine Lin and I got to join the trial as a PhD student. And we had a really uh, surprising outcome. So we took about 350 people and we randomly assigned them to either get a short course of an opioid pain medicine or a placebo. And we followed them up for a full 12 months to see how they fared in terms of pain and function and quality of life and any short or long-term side effects they had. 
And surprisingly, we found that in the short term, the people that took an opioid were no better off compared to the people that took a placebo. So there was no benefits in terms of pain, function or quality of life to taking an opioid. And perhaps even more interesting was the long-term results, which was that the people in the opioid group actually fared worse over 12 months. And at the 12-month time point, they had worse pain on average than the people that took a placebo. And can you tell me what people on the placebo group actually had because they weren't just sort of decided that they had to go and grin and bear the pain, did they? They had some treatment. But what was the nature of that treatment that both groups got? So everyone in the study got what we called guideline recommended treatment. So there were no restrictions on what doctors could prescribe for those patients. We just asked them to report what they did. So some people were sent off to physiotherapy. Some people were supplemented with other pain medicines like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or um, paracetamol even. But we asked everyone to report what else they did and there were no differences between groups. So on average, people went off and did about the same thing. It was really only the opioid that was the difference between those two groups. And based on your study and the rigour of that study, do you think that opioids should now be removed from any guidelines or are there still more work to be done before we remove the recommendations in some guidelines to continue to consider opioids for back pain? I I do think they should be removed for guidelines for acute back and neck pain, seeing as that was the population of the OPAL trial, and we got a really clear signal that there are just no benefits for that population. The OPAL trial looked at acute pain, so the recommendation is, is essentially to not start new users on opioids that have acute episodes of pain, but it's a whole different kettle of fish, people that have chronic pain, especially those that are already long-term users of opioids. So the OPAL trial doesn't really give any answers to that population and there there are risks associated with abruptly stopping people on opioids. So we don't want the OPAL trial results to be misinterpreted to mean that clinicians should cease prescribing of opioids to people with chronic pain who've been on them for a long time um, because that can be dangerous when done suddenly. And in the study, you use the term back pain generically and I notice you have Um, a larger group who had low back pain and a relatively small number of people who had neck pain. And so I have a question around whether you think that these findings of not using opioids equally apply to people with low back pain as well as people with neck pain. It's true that our sample was majority back pain. I think it was maybe 80% and only a, a small fraction of people had neck pain. So we were a bit underpowered to make really conclusive comments about neck pain, but the data we did see in the study, it wasn't any different. There doesn't seem to be any benefits for acute neck pain either. And so why do you think, well, what, first off, what are the causes of low back pain, this acute low back pain? And And why do you think opioids don't work? Back pain is so complicated. Um, Pain is so complicated. So, you know, pain can be because of a physical injury, like some physical damage that leads to pain. But we also know you can experience pain when there's no identifiable physical damage there. You know, we know it's related to stress and lifestyle as well as potentially physical damage. So it is really complicated. So when you think that there are so many different causes and the, the opioid only targets one kind of pain, which would be that, you know, pain related to physical damage. I guess it makes sense why it wasn't, um, you know, one simple treatment wasn't effective to treat such a complicated condition. That sort of leads me on to this next question. Because there's so little in the way of diagnostic specificity in low back pain, how are we going to move the field forward so that we have better precision around the diagnosis and maybe there are subgroups of people within that that opioids would work in or or other treatments, but it's a sort of a big group of people who have different types of 
pain and different types of low back pain who all get lumped together? Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's a discussion that's happening in the field now. For a while, we we were moving away from trying to subgroup people and we were sort of Anyone who didn't have an obvious identifiable cause of back pain was given this label of non-specific back pain. And they're the people we included in the OPAL trial. So it's it's your garden variety back pain where there's no obvious cause. So people that perhaps had a, a fracture in one of their vertebrae or some sort of malignancy or infection, they weren't included in the OPAL trial. So those serious pathological causes for back pain, um, the findings of OPAL don't necessarily apply to them. There is maybe more recently a bit of pushback in the other direction that maybe we should be looking more closely at what subgroups exist. And seeing as most treatments we test don't work on average across the board, maybe we do need to look at smaller groups of people and, and find things that work for smaller subgroups. And do you have any views on the place of imaging in low back pain? Is, is that a bit beyond the, the remit of this study, but do you have any views yourself on whether people with low back pain should go along and have MRIs and CTs? I'm not an expert, but what I do know in the literature is that while we don't really know how to subgroup people and treat them differently, there's no real benefit from going along and getting something like an X-ray or an MRI because you may find something, a a change that could be related to your pain. It could not be. It could be just a normal age-related change that then it sort of sets you on this pathway to get potentially unnecessary treatment. You might end up being referred for surgery to correct that structural damage they've seen, whereas we don't know if that's actually causing your pain at all. And often it's not because people go on to have them treated with surgeries and their back pain doesn't improve. So the way things are now, to go and get imaged is more likely to cause you harm than to actually help you solve your problem. That's a great answer and and great advice as well, I think, to people out there. So now you're in this new world where you've done your study and people will not be potentially using opioids anymore as a result of your important study. What are you going to advise or what should general practitioners and other people advise people who come into their rooms with low back pain? Take us through the sort of high-level guidelines. Yeah, sure. So people that first present with back pain, if it's acute, chances are it's going to get better. So some reassurance uh, to that person to tell them that if they just do their best to maintain their normal activities, there's a very likely chance that they will feel better without any intervention. If that person does feel like they need some sort of intervention, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do seem to have the best benefit-harm balance. They do have moderate benefits and in most populations only small harms. So that would be the the go-to medicine to turn to if you do feel like you need to turn to a medicine. For people with more chronic and complex back pain, there's recently been two really interesting studies called the RESOLVE trial and the RESTORE trial that have tested these complex multifaceted interventions with people and found really promising effects. And what are those interventions? One is cognitive functional therapy. So it's, I guess, looking at the whole person and coming at it from a whole heap of different angles, which makes sense when you think that back pain has so many complicated causes. So yeah, those two trials have showed some effects where um, everyone in the back pain space was getting a bit depressed because trial after trial, we just, we keep finding things that don't work, but it's often the individual treatments don't work. But when you sort of help someone with this comprehensive program that helps them tackle all the different areas of their life that might be contributing to back pain, that's where we see the best effect. So I think that is where treatment for back pain is heading. And I was just curious, this study, it took quite a long time to recruit and finish. 
And I thought, well, back pain is so common. You know, why would it take so long to recruit 300 odd patients? And I think it was like four years, is that right? Even longer. <laughs> yeah, even longer. Okay, more than four years. And so what does that tell us about the sorts of community engagement we need to actually advance these fields? Because if it takes four or five years to recruit to just this study, then we're not going to advance the field of back pain if it's such a slow process. Yeah. We joked throughout the study that the, we've cured back pain. The best way to cure it is to go looking for people that have it and suddenly they all disappear. But um, it is so common and there's people with back pain all over the place. But to find someone who is willing to join a placebo-controlled study, it's quite a unique person because they have to agree to a 50-50 chance of getting either a strong and controversial pain medicine or a placebo, which they know is nothing. So often people had a strong preference. They'd say, oh, I'll join as long as you can guarantee me an opioid, or I'll join as long as you can guarantee me the placebo. But to find a person that would really be happy either way is rare. So that's why it took so long. And I think that the answer going forward is for us to do an even better job at embedding clinical trials into regular practice, which is not so easy with placebos, but in other trials where you're comparing two treatments to just be running trials in the natural healthcare system so that no one has to go out of their way to join a study or a clinician doesn't have to go out of their way to recruit a patient to a study. And I think that will help us get important answers much faster. Yeah, I think that's often underappreciated. I know in the field that I work in, in cancer, clinical trials have become um, part of clinical practice, really. It's so embedded, it's sort of, you can't separate the two. But in these other areas where, you know, they have huge morbidity, people are seemingly less engaged as a community in, in understanding the importance of doing trials like this, because, you know, I imagine there's a lot of people who have taken opioids, perhaps uh, inadvisedly now, over the last four years, if they had have had the OPAL trial results there, their doctor would not have prescribed an opioid. That's what those delays mean in practice. Yeah, I agree. I think it's also challenging when you're testing a treatment that's been around for a long time. It's not like we could offer a new exciting treatment. It was something that people could access easily outside the trial anyway. And so to convince them why they should take extra time and effort, you know, while they're unwell with back pain to, to join a study, to take a medicine that they could easily get outside the trial, it's, it's a bit of a hard sell. So we really appreciate everyone that volunteered to join. It's been great talking to you today, Caitlin. Congratulations on your study. Maybe you can just tell us what's next for you in your research career. Well, uh, so... Yeah, after looking at back pain, which is sort of one of the biggest reasons for um, over-prescription and inappropriate prescription of opioids, it seems like the next thing to look at is post-surgical pain because that's sort of the next biggest area where we think there's overuse and misuse of opioids. So our next plan is to tackle how effective opioids are used after surgery, like hip and knee replacement. That is fantastic work, and I think everyone listening would be aware of the downsides of opioids. I don't think we need to provide any information on that, but I think it's very, very well-known abuse of opioids and their consequences to people, their families, and how addictive they are. To whole communities as well. Exactly. It's been great talking to you, Caitlin. We really wish you all the best. So thank you for joining us on Research Bites, and we came to you from Gadigal land. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can listen back, read the paper and find the transcript on soundcloud.com forward slash fmh news.